This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. It's a brand new year. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. At the start of a new year, you might be thinking that you didn't read enough last year and this year, one of your New Year's resolutions could be to read more. A good way to get more information and use your time more effectively could be to check out the Blinkist app. With Blinkist, in a very short time, you'll get all the best need-to-know information from the best non-fiction books that are out there. If this is something you want to try out, you can use our link for a free seven-day trial. Head to Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com forward slash what you will learn for your free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Mastery by Robert Greene. Robert Greene, he's done it again. He's the author of our favorite book of all time and this has got to be top five for me. It's uh, This time it's all about the strategies and the process that you need to go through in order to attain mastery and become the best in your field. If you really think about it, we're all born with a very similar brain, similar cognitive capacities, more or less the same configuration, the same potential for mastery. But why is it in history that only a limited number of people actually reach these wild levels of mastery and make some serious dents into the world and achieve success and all that kind of stuff? So this is what this book is all about. It's how to go on that same path to make a dent. Yeah, you might look to the Mozarts and the Da Vinci's of the world and you just think that it's they had something different about them. They had some natural talent, some brilliance, some innate inborn abilities. But if we're just using that to account for their uncanny achievements... There are thousands and thousands and thousands of children around the world born every single year that display those same kinds of unique, creative, exceptional skills at an early age. But somewhere along the line, it gets drummed out of them, and it's only that very rare few that are able to continue on this path to achievement. Yeah, there exists a form of power and intelligence that represents the highest point of human potential. Unfortunately, it's something you're not going to go to university and get in a master's degree from a professor doing a master's in mastery or anything <laughs> like that, uh, which is a shame because it would be nice yeah. to just go to uni and do that That'd instead of uh, studying something random. But it turns out the educational system actually trumps and beats the mastery potential out of you because it makes you conform to society instead of finding the thing that is the path for you for your journey toward becoming a master. So what Robert Greene did in writing this book was he examined the lives and the journeys of masters throughout history, where they were great artists, composers, or whatever they may be. And he also looked at modern day masters. So the people who were alive today and in the in the 20th and 21st century who were following similar trajectories uh, to achieve mastery, whether that was in, in business or in, or in sports or any types of masters. And he found that there are the same basic elements repeated in their lives throughout all of these great masters, whether the, the current day or the historical ones. They all possessed this youthful passion or predilection that had some kind of chance encounter with something mysterious in their life that allowed them to discover some kind of inner voice or inner force or some kind of true calling. And then what they did was they went through this apprenticeship phase where they allowed their curiosity to grow, but then they were developing their skills along the journey and they had this energy and focus that drove them forward. And then finally, as they moved towards you know learning the ropes and getting a firm grasp of their field, they were able to bring some creativity, some innovation. They were able to mix different things together and create masterpieces. One of the things all these masters 
had in common is they had a different relationship with time. If you think about what animals are, they're locked into a perpetual present. They can learn from your recent events, very recent, but are easily distracted by what's in front of their eyes. Slowly, over a great period of time, our ancestors overcame this basic animal weakness. We humans, we evolved the ability to detach and think, and this was our primary advantage in the struggle to avoid predators and run away from your hyenas and your lions. Yeah, if, if you're an animal and you sit for too long and think about stuff, either if you're a prey, you're going to get snapped up by the lion, or if you're the lion sitting there looking at your prey and observing, the, the antelope's going to run away and that's game over. But humans were somehow able to reverse this and they found that the more time that they spent observing, analyzing, learning, they actually got better and better and more intelligent and they were actually better able to capture prey. And this kept evolving over two to three million years and this ability. And slowly we had the abil- we grew the ability to become more and more creative and this eventually evolved into different kind of skills and different kind of art forms. So this very long stretch of time played a very critical role in our mental development. It's fundamentally changed our relationship with time that, and we can let time work for us rather than against us. It is really uh, shifting your perspective. If you see time as the essential ingredient in going through this apprenticeship phase, building your skills towards greater mastery, then you're on the right track. But if you take the opposite route, if you think you can skip steps and avoid the progress and get straight to the end point and magically gain through power through your social connections or through political moves, or maybe just think you've got these natural talents so you can go straight to the mastery point, you've actually become a slave to time. You're reversing our natural powers because as time goes on, you start to grow weaker. If you're always looking for the shortcut, you can never quite get to the higher realms of achievement. Yeah, that human with a bad relationship with time becomes a little bit like the distracted scanning animal, unable to think in depth, yet unable to depend on any instincts. So at any moment, we can really shift our relationship with time and work with the grain and knowing its existence and power. We've got a great opportunity today. In the past, it was only perhaps those social and economic elites who were able to harness their superhuman energy to pursue their career choice or whatever types of creations they were building. But today, some of those barriers have been broken down. If you're listening to this podcast, you've got all of the opportunities that you could possibly need in order to become a master. It's just about shifting that mindset and resigning yourself to the path of the master. It's absolutely unbelievable today. You can almost do anything you want. You can't have everything, but you can do almost anything if you choose and you prioritize. This privilege really wasn't around uh, generations ago. But one thing that's going against this in terms of mastery, it's starting to become, this whole concept is starting to become denigrated and associated with something old-fashioned and even unpleasant. And if someone's trying to achieve mastery in your account and you come across someone who says that at the pub, it's kind of a negative thing, right? Like you think they're overly ambitious and uh, you're kind of rooting against them, especially in Australia with our tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, if you view mastery and power as things of they're evil and you, they're in the domain of the the patriarch trying to dominate with their power structures and oppress us, if you're viewing this power and mastery as inherently bad, then that's going to really infect you in many subtle ways. So you're probably going to unconsciously lower your sights, so you're not going to aim as high, and you're also going to diminish your levels of effort and discipline because you're not going to be effective anymore. If you think that striving to become great is a bad thing, then of course you're not going to strive. So first, we must see our attempt at attaining mastery as something extremely necessary and positive. Obviously, if you don't see it as a good thing and you don't value it, you're not going to go out and get it. And second, you must convince yourself of the following. 
people get the mind and quality of brain and even the results that they deserve just mm. through their actions in life. So despite the popularity of genetic explanations of our behavior, so we've actually, our brain is quite plastic and you can change your brain uh, in certain ways to actually to become someone who can achieve mastery. So this book is designed to lead you from the lowest forms to the highest levels of intelligence. So if you realize that you can change your brain and through applied effort over a long period of time, you can achieve mastery, this book is going to show you the right ways to do it. And so it's a, it's a beast of a book as per most of Robert Greene's. We're going to break this uh, book into three episodes. So the first part is going to be all about the calling. It's about discovering your life's task, finding the task that is truly unique to you, and this is the path that you should be following and pursuing in life. The second episode is about the apprenticeship. This is the phase where you're learning the ropes, you're developing the basic and necessary skills to lay a strong foundation. And then the third, the third episode, we're going to be talking about creativity. That's where you bring forth your basic skills, you start to mix things together, you try things, you take risks, and you can create something truly unique and masterful. So this, this first episode, we're going to learn how to discover your calling, your life's task. It's a question that pops up in everyone's brain, I think, who hasn't discovered their own calling. So this is quite practical on how to get there. It's like that book Peak, right? Some people have got a job, some people have got a career, and some people have got a calling. And uh, to weave a few other books in recently, we've spoken a few times about the litmus test of if your Saturday morning minus your Monday morning is very big, so you're dreading Monday morning, you're extremely excited for your Saturday morning, you're probably someone who's in a job and a career, someone who's in a calling, it doesn't matter if it's Saturday morning or Monday morning, work is kind of mixed into their enjoyment. So this is the, if you're not at this stage yet, then there's a lot of value in uh, listening to this part. Many of the greatest masters in history, they confess to experiencing some kind of force or voice or sense of destiny, something out there that has been guiding them forward on their path. Napoleon used to refer to it as like his guiding star that he was heading in the right direction. Socrates and Einstein said so they heard this mysterious voice going on inside of them that was pointing them in the right direction. This is the type of calling our life's task. And, you know, these feelings could be seen as mystical, a bit woo-woo, a bit spiritual, somewhat beyond explanation, somewhat delusional. But there's the other view is that all of us are born unique. We have some kind of uniqueness in our DNA, something that is deep within inside of us that's eminent, it's real, it's practical, and something that we can explain as this is the types of things that we should be uh, moving towards throughout our journey of mastery. It's quite phenomenal to think you are actually a one-time thing in this whole universe. Your exact genetic makeup has never, ever occurred before and it will never occur again. Even the billions and billions and billions of people around, out of all the galaxies and stars that are out there, there's only one of you. And because of that, there's somewhere, there's something about you because of this DNA makeup that makes you unique compared with everybody else. So this is a somewhat of an inclination that is only yours. It could be an attraction to a particular physical movement, a spatial arrangement, something visual, a certain subject. Robert Greene refers to this thing as like a seed that's planted within us at birth. This is our uniqueness. It wants to grow. It wants to transform itself. It wants to become a fully-fledged flower and completely fulfill its potential. And it has this natural assertive energy towards it to drive you forward. And for some people, if you can understand what your seed is and you can discover it, you can add a bit of water, you can add a bit of uh, fertilizer, and you can head on the right trajectory following your life's path and truly understanding what your calling is 
So that's one force. It's the, this uniqueness that wants to grow as a plant and flourish into something new that's never happened on this universe. But then the other force that's weakening in it, and uh, take your analogy to another step further, is kind of like this shade blocking it and mm. uh, taking away all the sunlight and nutrients away from it. And this thing that's going against your uniqueness is the social pressures to conform. And this is a very, very powerful counterforce. Yeah, you want to fit into the group. You don't want to be the crazy heretic who's going off to try something wild and different unconsciously or subconsciously. We want to feel like we're part of a group. We're an innately social animal and we don't want to be ostracized from the group. So we want to do either what everybody else is doing. We want to do what our parents instructed us to do. We want to do what our friends are doing. We want to feel like we're part of the group and not ostracized. Yeah, it could be very embarrassing and painful. You know, it might be... You're someone who you're a male and you want to go out and do a sport like ballet or something like that, but your parents want you to be an engineer. That's a very, very powerful personal story. (laughs) (laughs) That was quite specific. (laughs) I don't want to do ballet, by the way. There's enough ballet in my life at the moment. But say if this is the case, that's a very, very strong force, right? And I think this is a kind of thing that's very common for people, especially in their teens and their 20s. And this is one of the most critical periods as well for your seed to be growing. This can set you on a very dangerous path. If you know this seeds inside of us, but we're too much affected by the external forces around us, so social forces, our friends, our family, our colleagues, our bosses, our teachers, it sets us on this dangerous path because it could lead us towards choosing a career that doesn't really suit you. You might head off on a path that is too different to your calling. You might lose a bit of desire. Your interest will slowly wane. Your work is going to suffer. Your tasks are going to become somewhat mechanical. You're going to be stuck in the daily grind of just doing what you have to do, ticking the boxes, churning out pretty mediocre work on the other side. So this is the risk that we face if we're too affected by this external forces. Yeah, he's got a big one here. He says, you've broken your contract with your destiny you formed at birth. Wow. That's a big one, isn't it? So it is a very big one. I think it's, again, retrospectively, look at it back from the age of 80. If you're on your deathbed and you... you know in your heart that you've broken your contract with what your your uniqueness was because you you wanted to conform to social pressures to fit in. I mean, that's a pretty big contract to break if you're only uh, on this universe and existing once. That's pretty serious. So obviously, the thing that we want to do is find our calling, discover our life's task, sort of uh, chop away the weeds to find that vital seed uh, that we can sprout towards our own calling. And so Robert Greene says there are three stages towards realizing your own life's task. The first one is you need to connect or probably in most cases reconnect with your inclinations and your own sense of uniqueness. So that first step, it's inward, it's introspective. You're looking through the past to some kind of signs of some inner voice or force that was guiding you. Maybe it was something when you're a young child that you really felt strongly about, that you were really excited about, but the other kids at school thought you're a weirdo, but maybe that was a good sign. Yeah, in this stage, you also got to clear away other forces that might confuse you, like your parents and your peers. It's a uh, pretty strong language, clear away. <laughs> clear away. I don't know if Robbie Green's friends and family are still alive. <laughs> they've what, been cleared. I don't know if they've been cleared <laughs> or if they're still kicking it, but this is one of the things you need to do is uh, deodorize the, the headwinds of you find the calling. Oh, nice. The second stage in realizing your life's task is with a connection that you've established for your inclination, you must look at the career path you're already on to begin with. So it's probably at this stage, it's the two separate things. You might be that 
engineer and you're four years in and deep down you know you want to be a ballerina, mate, it's a bit, pretty big jump to, to go out and do ballet instead of being an engineer. I'm not going to do it anytime soon. But <laughs> That's a very big jump. That's a very big jump. But importantly, what Robert says in, is in this phase, we need to look at the path that we're already on, but we can't just look at that as like one or the other, life or work. We need to expand and enlarge what our concept of work is itself. We often see work as just what we go to do five days a week for 40 hours where we go out and we make some money and we come back home and then we can start living. So work is what we see as the means to the end rather than an end in itself. Yeah, definitely. I think people out there just see it through two different paradigms. Either you're working to live, so you're working your five days a week to live on the weekend or you're living to work, you're just working all the bloody time. But under Greeno's definition, there's probably a third one and work and living are actually the same thing. So you're not trading time for your work. You're actually enjoying it the whole way because you're doing what's your life's task. Yeah, of course. So if we're if we're viewing work and life as one and the same thing, we want to be moving more towards our calling and our life's task. And so that third phase is that we need to view our career and our calling as more of a journey with twists and turns, ups and downs, peaks and troughs, rather than just a straight line. So we're not going to think, okay, here's our here's our calling, here's our life's task, here's the end point, this is me, I'm just going to continue on this journey. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs, twists and turns along the way. And as you keep flexible and allowing yourself to maneuver around, eventually you might hit upon a particular field, some kind of niche or opportunity that absolutely suits you perfectly. And once you recognize that this thing's for you, it's going to spark this childlike sense of wonder and excitement that's going to get you up all and about and it's just going to feel right. And once you've found everything is going to fall into place, right? This is where you've actually found the calling, the things for you, and this is going to set you on the trajectory for mastery. Yes, I think it's this constantly evolving process where you begin down something that you feel is is kind of right. It roughly corresponds to your inclinations. And along the path, there might be a few twists and turns through this introspection and getting connected back with his voice. You can start to shift the trajectory of your career more towards it. Maybe you might go off track a little bit and you need to shift yourself back towards it. And Robert Green outlines a bunch of strategies here as to how we can go through these three phases to find our life's task. The first strategy is the primal inclination strategy, returning to your origins. Albert Einstein, when he was five years old, his father gave him a compass as a present and instantly he was transfixed by this compass. He'd move the compass in different orientations and the needle, this magical force of electromagnetism at the time would move the needle around and this invisible force and at five years old he was thinking hey what what if there are other invisible forces Mm -hmm. in the universe and this was his original primal inclination and this question kind of stayed with him for his life and to the point where he actually found another invisible uh, force in the universe and which led to his finding of general relativity yeah so we should be doing some digging back to when we were young if you Look at this as the a metaphor or analogy. I don't know what the difference between the two is, but one child might be given a compass. They pick it up, they move it around, they see the needle moving, and if they turn around, it sort of turns around as well, and it might be kind of cool. And they think, oh, yeah, this is cool, but then they put it down and that's it. But if you were the type of kid that picked up the compass and were absolutely fascinated by it, you were trying to manipulate it, you were trying to work out what made the needle move, maybe that was a, a good indication of the types of paths you should be heading down. Another strategy is occupying the perfect niche, which is the Darwinian strategy. Man, I think the metaphor of a career like an ecological system is extremely powerful and runs very, very deep. 
It goes like this. People occupy particular fields which they must compete for resources and survival. So the more people in this crowded space with a limited amount of resources, the harder it becomes to thrive there. So working in a field where it's very competitive, uh, it's going to over time wear you out and you're going to be struggling to get attention. You have to play these political games that are unproductive and really fight and fight and fight in any way you can to win the scarce resources for yourself. And most of us are actually going to be seduced into these paths, which are red oceans. I'll let you take that analogy a bit further in a second. But the red oceans, because you see all the other people out there making a living. So you follow on the same path without really being rational about, about without being conscious of the road that you're taking. Yeah, that business book we did uh, about 18 months ago, The Blue Ocean Strategy. Is that what it's called? <clears throat> The Blue Ocean Strategy, that talked about the Red Ocean. That's where the wars are happening. That's where the competition is. That's where the battles are. People are dying, so the water is uh, is stained red. But if you go out to a Blue Ocean where it's nice and clear all around you, there's nobody else out there. That's the type of, of place you want to go. There's no competition, so you can own and dominate that niche. Mm. It applies to business, but it also applies to your own career as well. It's probably safer and easier to go to the Red because it's clear. Here's the steps you need to take. If you do this much work, you can get a promotion and get this much money. So it's sort of easy, the path's in front of you. Blue Ocean's tougher, but much more rewarding. Yeah, bringing it into 2020 with all the disruption that we're gonna and the excitement that we're going to get over the next decade. I mean, when I went to university, it was very, very popular to do degrees like law or medicine. Just because when you're entering high school, you see the movies where they're making a killing, all the lawyers, dollar per hour, all that kind of stuff. But when you hit university, all the smartest people were attracted to this same field. So it's the most competitive industry when you're at university. And ironically, it's probably the worst kind of career you can do to actually get a good job at the end because that competition stays throughout from the very start. And you're in this red, bloody ocean that might have been lucrative one day. But today, in terms of the blue oceans, that's not the niche that you potentially want to be going into. All that law is starting to get automated. Blue oceans might be the things around the more computer programming, veering off track a little bit here, but but all those new industries and new opportunities that are opening up. So Robert Green's suggestion is that in the beginning, you choose a field that roughly corresponds to your interests. And from there, you've got two options. The first way is to be constantly looking for the side path. So look for things that particularly attract you, a possible sidestep, a move into something more narrow, a narrow field, a narrower niche, and continue through this process of Keep shifting a little bit that's heading in the same direction but is more narrow. And so continuing through this process, you'll eventually end up in an unoccupied niche. Or the other approach to take is you head down one path, you get to a level of achievement, a level of mastery in that field, and then you look for something completely different and look to master that. And by the end, if you've got these two different fields, if you can combine them together, you make a really cool intersection where you're the the master of both and you've created your own unoccupied niche. Another strategy is avoiding the false path, the rebellion strategy. The false path is something that's always going to attract you but for the wrong reasons. It might be money, fame, attention and so on. So let's say you're, uh, you're in your career now, you've got two choices. You can go to another job where... You can add a new skill to your set where you're getting closer to finding your niche but you're getting paid less and this is probably a realistic decision that people get. Or you might have another choice where you can use your current skill set, keep on this path, but you're going to get more money, fame and attention in in the short term. If you went down the path of money and fame and everything, this is really the thing that's attracting you for the wrong reasons and it can be dangerous in the long run. So 
rebellion strategy is understanding this and avoiding that path as much as you can. Yeah, recognize the reasons behind the decisions you're making. If the reason is based on money or fame or attention or respect or you know the approval, the social approval, these are the wrong reasons and this is something to actually push away from and again, reconnecting back to our uniqueness, our truest self, looking for that path that is us and selecting the journey for the right reasons, not for the wrong ones. And another important thing to think of, if, you've, if you realize that you've, you've headed down a certain path for years or potentially decades, depending on when you're listening to this, you might think it's too late to change. But Robert Greene says that, no, you, this is not just something for the teens and the 20-year-olds in the audience. This is something for everyone. And you can let go of the past. You can let go of what you've done so far. It's obviously going to take a bit of sacrifice. It's going to be pretty painful in the present. But you've got to realize that if you shift out of the wrong path and shift towards the right path in five, 10 years down the road, you're going to be exponentially happier and more successful. So in summary of this first step of finding your calling, we need to understand that you are a very unique phenomenon in the universe. There's something inside you, some inclination that you want to cultivate and water and keep growing and growing and growing and finding it in through all the work that you do and understand that there are going to be these pressures that are going against this, the pressure to conform to what society really expects of you instead of what that is. So this is a very big and important step for everyone listening. But once you find that, we're going to be covering the next part on the way to mastery, which is all about the apprenticeship phase. Yes, I think it's an important time now just to realize that, hey, there probably is something deep inside you, whether you realize it or not. Maybe take a step back, take a bit of a break, have a little bit of introspection and ask yourself a few questions. So that's the end of the first episode on mastery. The next episode we're going to do is about the apprenticeship phase. So this is realizing that you pretty much know nothing. You've got to build up these skills. You've got to learn the ropes. You've got to start to get a true understanding of the world and of your field that you're choosing to head towards. And then episode three after that, after you learn the ropes, you learn the basics, you're going to be moving into something creative. You're going to apply your creativity and innovation into creating something unique and masterful. listening for a while i think you'll know by now that me and ashto we both love a good read and the ones we love the most we've really put down ranked and ordered into our top 50 we juked it out because some books we agree on a lot of them we don't agree on but i think this top 50 we both agree is pretty freaking phenomenal so if you want to check it out head to whatyouwillearn.com forward slash top 50 and you'll be able to get it for free